Welcome to another episode of Cyber Coast to Coast. I'm Scott Schober from the East Coast here, and I want to welcome my brother from the West Coast. Craig, how you doing? Hey, this is Craig on the West Coast coming at you from uh, Long Beach, California, specifically. Um, I'm doing fine. However, uh, my wife is not. She tested positive for COVID and is oh, no. currently recovering. So we're living in a a quarantined house, uh, which is actually, you know, half of the, half of the house is under quarantine. The other half I live in kind of come and go. So it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's, you know, I, I kind of want to get a full hazmat suit and, and, uh, <laughs> you know, do the boy in the bubble thing and all that stuff. But, um, her symptoms are beginning to subside, I think. So okay, before, good. you know, before I can get the hazmat suit delivered, she'll probably be recovered. So yeah. Yeah, I think for, for the most part, it sounds like most people that have have gotten it, fortunately, you know, it's like a like a bad flu or cold. And and once it passes, I personally haven't got it uh, yet. And, and I'm hopeful I don't, but I don't wish it on anyone from the things I hear. But I think everywhere, or at least in New Jersey here, I'm hearing of people, everybody knows somebody that has it or they've had it. So um, the good news is it, it, it seems like it's finally starting to lose the battle. A couple of weeks ago, it was up to 25,000 cases per day. When I checked earlier today, it's down to about 5,000 something cases per day. And they said, uh, I think hospitalizations in New Jersey, this was specifically dropped 39%. That's a good sign because yeah. it's one thing when you're sick, but it's scary when someone goes to the hospital. And, and obviously it's really sad with when somebody passes from it. So just stay safe out there, everyone. And do the best you can to, to, you know, washing the hands and keeping your, your distance, quarantining like you're doing, Craig, whatever, whatever it takes to, to stay safe and healthy, I think is important for everyone until we can get through this. That's it. Um, and, uh, yeah, we got some nice, uh, you know, the past couple of shows we've been doing more, uh, kind of a mix of hardcore cybersecurity and consumer electronics and tech talk and stuff like that. But these are pretty, pretty, pretty uh, strong cybersecurity focused uh, topics we got. Um, so we should get into them. But um, yeah, before absolutely. we before we do, I just wanted to mention that uh, this episode is sponsored by Cyberlytica. Cyberlytica uh, brings customers, business, enterprise, uh, proactive cybercrime intelligence, and you can learn more about them on cyberlytica.com. Uh, all right. Uh, what's the this first story here? Yeah, this, this first one I thought was kind of interesting. And actually, I uh, discussed this this week, and it was the selected headlines um, in a, a cyber, cybercrime radio. I, I shared the headlines, and I thought it was a very interesting story because it was kind of a spin on the traditional ransomware. We, we always think about ransomware. And if, if I asked you, Craig, when you hear ransomware, what do you associate it with? Anything come to mind? Oh, you know, I think of um, uh, state actors. Um, I think of uh, uh, groups. I think of ransomware as a service. That's becoming mm -hmm. a bigger thing. Exactly. You know, uh, encrypted files, that whole, all that stuff that comes with ransomware. Bitcoin yeah. payments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so there's that financial aspect of it. And, and oftentimes it's state sponsored, at least a lot of the ones that we hear about the big ones in the news. This one is kind of a little bit of a spin on it, which was kind of interesting to me. And, and, and we've all heard about uh, hacktivists. And, and this really um, 
comes from from hacktivists, and I should say this was uh, reported on initially by uh, Ars Technica, which puts out some 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 great stories there. And hacktivists uh, say that they hacked the Belarus rail systems to stop the Russian military buildup, which is kind of a, a it catches my eyes when I read headlines like that. And, and this happened uh, again this week. And we know about all the tension. Anybody that turns on the news has probably heard about it, be it radio or TV, Internet. Uh, what's going on over there with Russia? Uh, and, and there's a, a buildup of, of troops and, and things like that on, on the border there of Ukraine. So it's a serious situation that could have uh, global implication, especially when we think about uh, a war. I personally think that it's more likely that we're going to possibly see um, the initial stages of a cyber war as a result, kind of cyber World War Three, mm-hmm. when people realize that such superpowers have the ability to cause so much damage with their their weapons and troops they may be more inclined to to go to their keyboards and computers and 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 inflict pain so it could be more of a cyber warfare and and this is the first glimpse of it in in that uh these hacktivists in belarus they they infected a network uh of the country's state-run railroad system with ransomware and they said which was kind of funny they would only provide the decryption key only if the belarus president Alexander uh, Lukashenko stopped aiding Russian troops ahead of a possible invasion of Ukraine. So this is kind of documented. This attack would would be the first time ever uh, where ransomware was used in this unique way. In a sense, they're kind of like an underdog and they're using ransomware as, as a means of leverage. Yeah. And, and, and they showed it some proof through. If you read through the article, there was a couple uh, screenshots there as well. And in the process, they showed like the website, the screen locked up so people couldn't buy tickets to get on to the uh, to the railway. Um, they couldn't order online. It, it caused all kinds of challenges, I guess, for their entire uh, Belarus railway system there. Yeah, I don't know about you, but uh, I had to brush up a little bit on my geopolitical uh, stuff, you know, Eastern European. And when I looked at the map, I was like, where, what, you know, how big is Belarus? Where are they exactly? And I looked and, and realized, okay, Ukraine is South of them. You got Poland kind of to the West of them. And then the East and Northeast, you got this giant Russia. So I guess Russian troops starting to move into Ukraine for some kind of takeover or whatever military action, I guess Belarus is one of their main, uh, you know, travel routes to get through. And now these hacktivist hackers are saying, you know, we don't want, we don't want this to happen. We're going to block the railway system. We're going to cause disruption. And I I thought it was funny, even in their tweet, um, they, they mention um, they, they, they required the release of 50 political prisoners. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said that the point of this is, like I said, to prevent Russian troops from moving freely uh, through Belarus and into Ukraine. And they even went so far as to say that while they're disrupting, you know, ticketed passengers on this Belarus railway line, they're not going to affect the you know, emergency safety uh, mechanisms in place. So it, there is, it does seem like it's a truly uh, political demand. I'm sure there's, I'm sure everyone's got their own, you know, um, uh, needs and and desires when it comes to politics, things that we're not going to know about, of course, but it doesn't seem like there's any kind of money um, incentive here. It really does seem like kind of a, a political play. 
Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and I, as you're mentioning that, I started to think just to put put it in perspective, I think about New Jersey, and I think we have somewhere around 9 million plus people here in the state of New Jersey. And, and that's about the size of Belarus as far as population, about 9 million some people. In contrast, uh, Ukraine's got about 44 million people and, and Russia being you know a huge country, 144 plus million people. So it, it kind of puts things in perspective a little bit. Um, when we think about troop movement and all this, you know, getting things, logistics of moving things around and um, how many lives potentially could be affected by these type of things. But it was interesting, again, that this was kind of a, a revolutionary struggle here and how they're weaving in the use of ransomware for something like that. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of when one country um, creates these like economic sanctions against mm-hmm. another country. You know, it's not, they're not lobbing missiles over, they're not sending troops, but this, they're saying, you know, these hacktivists are saying like, oh, we're going to disrupt you just enough so that you feel the pain economically. You know, it's almost like cyber sanctions is going to become a new thing that we're going to see in, in cyber warfare in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think that makes total sense. And that's the, the future of cyber is, is definitely changing. Um, and I was reading some articles and a new hot area, and I'd love to talk about this maybe next time, um, was some deception technology and other things like that, that are starting to be introduced into the world of cyber. So some, some interesting areas that are, that are really popping up constantly. (coughs) Um, it kind of leads us to our, to our next story, since we're talking about ransomware, um, and, and that seems to be, again, a daily headline or the ransomware seems to be the most popular thing out there. But, but this story here comes from Bleeping Computer. And this was a uh, QNAP uh, force installs an update after Deadbolt ransomware, which is a particular strain of ransomware, hits 3,600 devices. Um, now, now, QNAP is, is a quality network appliance provider, and, and what they do is uh, provide comprehensive solutions in, in software development, hardware design. They have manufacturing, but I guess their core focus is really on uh, storage and, and networking and, and things like that with, with cloud solutions and stuff. Um, so they're, they're kind of in the middle of the whole thing. And the article goes on to share that uh, QNAP... Uh, updated customers uh, NAS, the network attached storage device with firmware containing the latest security updates to protect against the deadbolt ransomware. And it already encrypted about 3,600 devices. And then the update from Bleeping Computer was, uh, I guess, earlier this week on Tuesday, they reported that um, this ransomware operation named deadbolt was encrypting um, these devices worldwide. And uh, the Deadbolt ransomware gang is trying to sell the full details of this alleged zero-day vulnerability to QNAP for five bitcoins, which estimated for about one hundred and eighty-five thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Which I thought was an interesting little tidbit in the middle of that article there, as I read that, because a lot of times we don't think about zero days, but if you come across a zero day where we're basically there's no known. Um, security or a code to patch it, I guess you could say, a vulnerability that a hacker could take and they could immediately exploit that vulnerability and make the maximum amount of money from companies. Um, so they're, they're very valuable. 
And in this case here, that they're they're trying to actually sell it for one hundred eighty five thousand dollars, make a big chunk of change, and kind of get out of the business or something, or try some other things with it. It just was amazing. But more and more, these different strains of ransomware popping up each and every day, and the hackers just keep modifying them. Today's deadbolt will change to something else tomorrow when they'll, they'll change the scripts and the code a little bit, so that they're tougher to uh, to actually uh, to spot them. And it'll keep fooling people, uh, unfortunately. So it's a it's a def- definitely a problem as as uh, ransomware is evolving. Yeah, one of the uh, standout points in this story to me wasn't so much the the ransomware or the hackers. It was the response from QNAP themselves. Mm-hmm. They um they kind of forced a firmware security update on their users, even if the users had the auto update turned off, you know, that you, you check that box when yeah, you want your, <laughs> your, yeah, I, that's, that's kind of scary because I don't know about you, but for me, I, you know, I produce content. I rely on specific pro- editing programs, um, all types of, uh, you know, pro user apps. And when those things break, your work breaks, you can't get work done. It's a, it's a mess. So I try not to update too often, even though um, I do some bleeding edge updates. I like to buy new phones and, and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And I, you know, and if it's not a mission critical device, then sure, why not, you know, upgrade to the latest OS? What's the worst that could happen? You just re, you know, re, re-download it and, yeah. and you wipe it and start over again. But when you got tons of files from years of work and you have some a project that's due, you know, tomorrow, you can't take chances like that. Uh, so I thought that was that was a little scary. Um, uh, they said uh, when I was looking through, it said the iSCSI connections. Remember, remember SCSI connections yeah, back, from, way, back, way in, the back day? in the day? Yeah, I thought those were <laughs> I thought those were a thing of the past, but I guess they're still in use. Um, those uh, were affecting some users because of that uh, forced firmware update. And it goes on even further when I read, and it said that some of the people apparently paid for decryption. They paid the hackers, the ransomware ahead of time because they, you know, they had mission, like I said, they had mission critical applications. They had to get that stuff going. And then as a result of the uh, forced firmware update, they weren't able to decrypt the files now because it was pushed through. And now these poor uh, people, uh, they paid the Bitcoin and they can't even decrypt the files because it, it rendered that, that decryption screen that allowed them to go on to the next step. It, it, it removed that so they couldn't. So now it's almost like QNAP is working against their own customers and the customers are trying to work with the hackers and they're being blocked and mm. it's, it's a big mess. I'm sure it didn't affect a lot of people, but you know, these things, I, I think it was, um, it was I was an Apple issue, and it was a couple of years back. It was I think it was a zero day exploit, and I'm, I, I'm probably wrong about this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think it was I think it was related to uh, text messaging, some kind of exploit, and a thing where you could cause iPhones to crash or something like that. And as far as I know, it was the first case ever where Apple and perhaps a big consumer electronics company like Apple forced a uh, firmware update. It, you know, it was, it was necessary. It was, they probably made the right call because it was a security issue, but I remember that they forced it in the background and that made everyone kind of pop their heads up and say, Hey, wait a minute. 
We, we, we thought we knew that this was possible. Theoretically, Apple, you know, they hold the keys, they have a walled garden, they can do this kind of stuff, but we've never seen them actually do it. And here they went and did it for the first time. Is this going to become a reoccurring thing? Are they going to be just forcing iOS updates whenever they feel like it? Um, I don't know. What, what about you? How, how long do you wait before you update your operating system? You know, I, I, I got burned once a while back. You probably remember me complaining about it. I, I, I took on an early um, um, update on one of the OSs and mm-hmm. I had nothing but problems to the point where I was on the phone with Apple for hours. I couldn't get it to, uh, to really resolve the problem. It was a disaster. I had to get a new machine finally because I had so many problems. So um, I, I, I've since become slow to update sometimes, even though in the world of cybersecurity, I'm always telling people patch, update your OS, da, da, da. I don't immediately do it. I like to read a little bit of the background and hear a couple people that said, hey, I did it and it's successful. So I look to you as the guinea pigs of the world and others when I hear that, okay, you did it and it was successful, then okay, I'll jump on the bandwagon and do it. Now I know that I'm safe, but there is a, there's a little bit of inherent risk to, to unfortunately pressing that button and updating the second you see that the update's available. So um, I have to be careful that I practice what I preach when I tell people, yeah, you got to update and put your patches in. So what I'm trying to do is just read up on it to make sure at least if I am going to hit that button immediately, I know what to expect and I can get some help to remediate it. And I'm not stuck in a corner, especially with some critical applications. You don't want to be out of work where you can't, can't do something and accomplish anything. That could be a pain. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, this next story I wanted to jump into is kind of kind of an interesting one. Um, it, it comes from SecureWorks, and they put together uh, a nice article that's entitled "The Cybersecurity Skills Gap." And you can kind of go out there on, on the web and do a quick search. There, SecureWorks uh, does does some great stuff, and maybe just a little background on who SecureWorks is. They they do um, cloud uh, security. And analytics, uh, real-world threat intelligence research—they they do all kinds of stuff that allow you to detect advanced threats and uh, investigate them, and try to automate some of the things, which is really important in the world of cybersecurity today. So they're doing some great stuff there. But I had the privilege—they—they they interviewed myself along with some other colleagues, and uh, we got to talk a little bit about that cybersecurity skills gap, and especially how it, it comes into play with. Um, remote work and, and uh, looking at the talent gap and how that impacts different trends and things. And I was curious about maybe even what, what some of your thoughts might be when you think about um, re- working remote, because you are working remote and there's, there's things that you need to keep in mind because you're not at headquarters as far as security and best practices and things, um, which I think is important for, for anybody. And there's a lot of people listening into our show that are remote workers and they're, and they're in the tech space or they're in the cyber space and, and some of these things may come to mind. So any, any thoughts that stand out in your mind working remotely when you think about cybersecurity and stuff that you have to do that maybe you didn't think of or, or have to worry about as much when you're here at headquarters? Um, nothing jumps at me off the top of my head specifically. It, for me, it's more of a general, it's kind of the out of sight, out of mind thing. You know, mm-hmm. I have to remind myself that when I'm not working in an office situation, um, that these these people 
in that office are still affected by my actions outside of the office. You know, I'm, I'm working remotely. I have to make sure I'm not like, for instance, uh, you're asking me today for the, uh, we, you know, we had some uh, Wi-Fi issues and you wanted the Wi-Fi password and my, and of course we're doing this over text. So my first inclination is just uh, copy paste the tech, the password and the text message to you. And I know, and then you wrote, can you email it to me? And I was like, you know what? I would save a few seconds if I did it through the text message, but I'm going to email it to him because I'm pretty sure that email systems, uh, um, at least the way we use them, uh, compared to the way we use text systems in, in our, you know, our, our specific setup, emails a, a little bit uh, stronger. Um, and well, and there's, there's also other conveniences too, because we kind of both live on email and use yeah. it to communicate and stuff and that, and that way, but, um, I'm going to do that instead of just, you know, just doing a quick send over, over the text. And it's, it's little things like that, you know, you have to, you have to remind yourself to think about because you don't see them in front of you and you don't talk to people and you don't have them asking, Oh, can you just write this password on a post-it mm -hmm. note? And you know, those type of, those type of things. So yeah. I guess, I guess that's where I, I think of it. Yeah. And I think, I think that's, that's kind of an interesting little standout point because, and I always encourage people, if you're communicating, just like you mentioned, we're, if we're texting back and forth, and anybody was able to hijack that conversation, and now you share a password in it, that could be really be used against you. However, if in the conversation you you tell someone to, uh, in a sense, switch over to a different communication channel, yeah, I'll email it to you. They're they're unlikely that they hacked into your email and your phone at the same time, and hopefully with, with encryption in place and obscurity in a sense and the timing element it's a short burst, boom, it's gone. Although a lot of things are permanent and digital. So we have to be careful because it's stored somewhere out there. But um, I think it, it, it does help to, to spread things out a little bit and make it a little bit more difficult in a sense to, to, to track. Mm -hmm. I, I was right. thinking about just with, with COVID and many people in the, in the workforce with cybersecurity, everybody's kind of stretched thin. And now when you have people working remotely, it, it can make it more challenging. Um, and then also it was interesting in, in the article, the SecureWorks article, they're talking about some of the cybersecurity skills gap. They had me weigh in a little bit, just talking about some of the dynamics working remotely in your home. And again, I'm not working from my home, although I do have two hats. I go home and I'm a dad and to, to the family, but oftentimes I will jump on the computer and I'll do quotes at home or up at my cabin or, or wherever else. So I, yeah, I am working remotely just not the traditional nine to five. It's, it's really after hours. I tend to do it, but you're, you're really more uh, nor during normal work hours, you're home working from a remote office. Um, and I'm curious what, what you think as far as family dynamics, because they say sometimes that could be challenging because you have to realize, you, you know, you're living a life and there will be distractions and you have flexibility, but I'll notice even for you, sometimes you're, you're not working necessarily nine to five, even on California time, you're working on the weekends. I'll see you're working late at night. Something will come over sometimes at 3am from me. And I'm thinking, man, I look the next day at the email and I'm like, gee, she was up late. So do you notice that that work becomes kind of um, more hit or miss in patterns for you? And you have to adjust a little bit because of that? Oh, definitely. Um, I like that flexibility. Um, I mean, I, I guess I like it both ways. When I used to come into the office nine to five, it's nice to have a to have a focus 
because it, for, it forces you to have a focus, you know, you'll put, throw something on my desk and say, Hey, we need this, this, and this. And I know I have a kind of a deadline, which is usually, you know, same day or that week or something. And so I, I kind of do the mental checklist, this, this, and this, but I like to flex those other kind of muscles too, where you can, um, allocate different projects and responsibilities to yourself based on your own convenience. So, you know, I like to take our dog Tucker out on walks at certain times a day. I mean, she likes it and I like to, you know, do that for her. And I like to take her to the park and to the beach at certain times a day, you know, usually when, when the sun's out and it's, it's warmer and it's nice, you get the nice weather. It's great. And so this way I could kind of put my work kind of back push it back and hold it until later at night when maybe there's not going to be anything on TV I care about that night. And so I know I could, I could tackle these few projects because I'm not going to be outside and I'm not going to be doing anything inside except work. So I think that's a good way to, to do that too. And also, uh, um, it's nice. I think we're in a very uh, privileged position that I can, I have my own computer and uh, Kelly has her own computer, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of homes they have, um, especially yeah. in other countries. Yeah. They they'll have, a, you know, they'll literally have a phone as their primary device that the whole family shares. So, like that's yeah. the family computer, you know, that's why we see these big screen phones are so popular in these mm -hmm. giant, you know, Asian, primarily Asian markets and that, that stuff's spreading more and more to this country. But, you know, there's a lot of, uh, low income families, that have to share a computer. Now, if you have two people working from home, sharing that same computer, you can have all types of trouble as far as logging in with, with passwords and sharing desktop spaces and all those things. So those are things that have to be, um, you know, considered carefully by both the employer and employee. Yeah, I think so. And, and when thinking about that, um, this cybersecurity skills gap, I guess when people are hiring they really need to take in, 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 into full consideration that there's going to be a percentage of people these days that probably need to work remotely and they have to be able to adjust to this kind of new norm where you have to take into account, in other words, the person's family also and what they like to do and the timing and the flexibility. Because if you don't offer that, it's hard to, to really uh, retain people these days. It, it is challenging. There is a shortage of workers uh, and in particular the cybersecurity area. And, and to that point, I was thinking what, what's going on a lot lately. I've gotten just in the past few weeks, I think three different individuals that reached out to me and said, Hey, Scott, I'm looking for, for work in the, in the, you know, in the field of cybersecurity, do you know, any companies or could you introduce me to anybody? And so I'm always trying to at least, at least help people and make introductions where it seems like there's an appropriate fit with the right niche. And then I encourage a lot of people to, especially if they're looking to go for schooling, maybe do a university for a degree, or perhaps they want to get certification in cybersecurity, that, that it's important to try to, to intern with a company that you can kind of get your hands dirty and practice some things. So not only do it on your own, build up your skill set on a computer, hacking a little bit and understanding how different things intertwine. But, but also being an intern and getting some real world experience while you're going to college or while you're trying to, you know, qualify to get, take your certs exam or whatever, that way you're, you're ready much quicker to be in the field. And I think those type of things really help when you're trying to get into a particular area. And too many people say, hey, I'm going to go to school for, you know, 
two years, four years, whatever period of time. And then they start the job hunt. I think it's so important that you, you really try to do it while you're in school to see if you really like it and you enjoy it and, and you can be challenged by it as opposed to waiting to too late. Then, then it's harder. Then you're competing with everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Man, neat stuff. So if, if somebody out there is listening in here to uh, and thinking about the world of cybersecurity, you probably have because it's crossed your crossed your mind. How secure is your computer, your smart device, this or that? Um, th- th- think about that. There is a huge, huge need. Millions of people are needed in the field of cybersecurity. It's kind of like the call out a number of years ago to, to maybe nurses. There wasn't enough nurses. Now, I think after this pandemic, there probably will be a, a huge shortage in that field too, doctors and nurses, because everybody's burned out mm-hmm. from all this COVID work. Well, the same thing, I think, in, in the world of cybersecurity, and especially I, I hear a call out, and I've got a lot of great colleagues in cybersecurity that are women. They do some amazing things. There still is a shortage of women in cybersecurity. I think the last stat that I read, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 14% are women. Right. And, and that's way, way too low. Um, so it's yeah, you, something you, else there. You did that. Up. You did that review. What, what was that? Uh, women in cyber. What was the book called again? That's the, uh, yeah. Women in cyber. Women in it, cyber. It yeah. a, a great book. Oh, I'm sorry. Women know cyber. I apologize. And, right. and, and it's a hundred fascinating females fighting cyber crime. And, and this was put out by uh, Steve Morgan of cyber crime uh, magazine, cybersecurity ventures and uh, D freeze. So definitely check that out. Go to Amazon. Women Know Cyber, 100 Fascinating Females Fighting Cyber Crime. Uh, I, I got my copy and it was interesting because a lot of the colleagues in there, these women over time, I met at different shows, Black Hat, RSA, FutureCon, a lot of different great cyber events. And, and you learn a lot from them by, by this great read. So uh, that, that's an important area. And ho- hopefully if you're a woman listening in, Maybe, maybe you'll be the 100th, 101st or 102nd woman in cyber. Just keep growing that list mm-hmm. uh, as people enter into that field. Um, you, you know what I was thinking, uh, just as we kind of wrap up here, uh, the first two articles, and I was mentioning a lot of the headlines, focus so much on ransomware, Craig. And I think it's important that we leave our audience with just a couple practical things when we think about ransomware, because if you're a small business owner, you're working in a large fortune 500 company, you're in school, even at home, we all can be victimized by ransomware. Oftentimes by just clicking on that link in a phishing email, by clicking on a link in an SMS text that we might get, whatever the case may be. So I wanted to run down and share a couple of thoughts, some tips to stay safe from ransomware. And, uh, and feel free to jump in too. But I, I think we, if we start off just by something that, that all of us hear and we're kind of grown numb to it, but I always talk to people about the importance of strong passwords. And when we say a strong password, we mean the difference between some people create a password that's six or eight digits or characters that can be hacked by any automated password hacking tool in a matter of seconds. When you make a strong password, you really are making a password that is long and obscure and hard to remember. If that password is 12 to 15 characters, being a mixture of digits, uppercase, lowercase, and symbols, that will take years to hack and compromise, especially if there's no common words in it or nothing associated to you. So 
I would encourage people think about your passwords when you're managing them. Use a good password manager. Uh, I, I love Dashlane. I use that. And a lot of people use different types of password managers. Find one that works for you so you can create and maintain strong passwords and keep them safe. And, and another tip is don't reuse the same password over multiple logins. Too many people still do that. More than 50% of the people that use internet and computers reuse the same password in multiple spots when they log in because they can remember it. That's yeah. a big, big no-no. Yeah, when I think of passwords, to me, there's like three different types of passwords, or maybe it's three different types of people. I'm not sure, but there's like the the real stupid ones, like monkey one two three. That any hacker, you don't even need you don't even need to run a, a password guessing program to do that. Like the hacker could literally just type in monkey one two three, and that's it. You know, and then there's the ones that are more like they're a little related to maybe they have like your birthday in them or a name or your, your mm -hmm. pet's name or something like that. So it's guessable if you know a little bit something about the person, but it's not that easy uh, just all, you know, right off the bat. Then there's the third type, which of course is the secure ones, you know, random characters, um, special characters, upper lowercase, all that stuff. And those are, you know, impossible to guess and virtually impossible for a computer to crack it because it would take years to go through all those combinations to finally to get get to that and you know hackers have better things to do with their time than spend years on one password they're going to go to the lowest hanging fruit and so th to me those are the three different types of uh, approaches to passwords and i try to be the third in almost every case <laughs> you know yeah oh uh, another tip to stay safe from ransomware um and, and this one is just balancing uh, convenience versus security. Here, you want to opt on the side of security. In other words, it's going to take a little bit of time. Invest some time in this. Two-factor authentication, multi-factor authentication. It takes a little bit more time, not that much time, but it's really important. Having something besides just your traditional, you know, your email or username and a password. You want to have something else in addition to that that can really authenticate that it is you that's logging in and not some hacker. Um, th that's really important. In fact, it reminds me this week, I had a really uh, enjoyable um, interview on the radio with Zach Hack, uh, a cybercrime radio. And there was a caller that uh, called in and he had his Facebook account hacked. And, and, and this was an elderly gentleman about uh, in mid 70s. And, and I asked him, did he implement two factor authentication on, you know, when he would log into Facebook? And he said, well, no takes too long. He didn't have a chance to, but going forward, he's going to start to. And, and again, that that's nothing against him. That, that, that's a lot of people. That's everybody I hear that from. They, they just figure, well, who's going to hack me? I have nothing to hide. I don't have the time for it, but guess what? Now he's frustrated because not only was his account hacked, he unfortunately reused the same password across multiple logins. I found out he admitted uh -huh. to, and, um, you know, at least he was, he was transparent about that. And we were trying to share practical tips to keep safe for everybody, not just somebody that's elderly, but, but more and more people I'm finding just aren't implementing two-factor authentication. And I, I really encourage people to, to consider that because once you do, it's 10 times, it's a hundred times more secure than just your traditional mm -hmm. login. And you don't have to go through what that gentleman experienced, his frustration, uh, we had several conversations. We've been emailing back and forth. In fact, I sent him a copy of, of Senior Cyber 
to, to share some other tips and things with him so he could stay safe uh, on Facebook going forward. If he does go back to Facebook, he's so discouraged, he may not, uh, as well as just using his computer and the internet and, and for banking and other things. It's really important. Use two-factor authentication. Oh, yeah. Um, I actually like two-factor in most cases. Some cases, it's a real pain. Um, mm-hmm. But in, in most cases, especially in a, a Mac uh, ecosystem, it um, as soon as you uh, request that you know pin code or whatever, it will instantly send it to you know usually in the form of a, a text message, and then it will autofill in. I click on it and it autofills in for me mm-hmm. all within the browser, which is great because it it takes it it's it feels like it's doing the work for me and yet it's also secure. It's like you, you kind of get the best of both the best worlds. Of both worlds. Yeah. yeah, I like that. I think that is good. The only challenge with some of the sites that I log into secure sites, I've noticed sometimes when they're going to send um, the authenticator, be it a pin code, a passcode, whatever it is, um, it doesn't happen right away. Yeah. And that's frustrating sometimes. And and sometimes they don't, whatever the architecture of the website or however it's authored, it doesn't do an autofill. So Mm -hmm. I have to go and go into my phone or look at my text message on on the computer. And then I got to sit there and memorize. I'm like, oh no, it's not four or six characters. It's eight characters. I can't, (laughs) I can't remember that. So I keep looking back. Yeah. yeah, It's that's, you know, that's the inconvenience where it comes in, but you know, we still do it. (laughs) Yeah. 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 We have to, the other thing I always encourage people to do as you start getting comfortable with using multi-factor authentication, have the means that it alerts you change, change it up a little bit. In other words, I don't always have it email me or text me. Sometimes I'll have it just um, like for Amazon, if I'm going to log in with two-factor authentication, I'll mix it up and say, okay, select in the list. I have different ways that I could be notified. Select in the list to call the landline. Mm -hmm. And then it's an automated message that'll give me the specific one-time pin code. Next time I do it, I'm going to have it text me. The next time I do it, I'll have it email me um, or have it... Sometimes I'll have it as crazy as it sounds. It'll go to you and then you send it to me. Mm-hmm. Is it a little bit of, of obscurity? Sure. But sometimes that's the best way to be secure because a hacker can't follow you when you have three, four, five different paths to get that authenticator. So yeah. uh, mix it up and keep them guessing. That's you what I say. You sound a little bit like the the guy who, who's afraid he's being tailed. So he takes yes. a different way to the market each time, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. It works. It is. It's old school, but, but it does work. Uh, another, another tip to share. I mean, we talked already about updates and security patches. It is important to do your research, keep on top of those because that often will take care of the, um, the different strains of malware and things that will, will lead to a terrible ransomware attack. Um, but, but, but another thing, and this is not exactly a tip to stay safe from ransomware, I like to point out, but it's just good cyber hygiene. Have a good backup. You, you got to back your computer up. I encourage what's called an immutable backup. Uh, that's a type of backup where it can't be modified or altered. You can't erase it or mess up the backup because things like that happen. If you think about it statistically, I forget what the number was exactly, but it was something like 23 or 24% I read of backups don't work because people didn't back it up properly or they can't restore their system properly. So basically that's about a quarter of the backups. People that are spending all that time backing up their data, 
they're stuck. So if they get victimized by a ransomware attack, that's one in four people that resort to the backup. It don't work. So take your time, do it right. And, and I encourage you to disconnect it. Make sure your backup is offline. A lot of people do like cloud backups. They've gotten them much better and more secure. Um, there have been some strains of ransomware that will infect the cloud backup as well. So you got to do your research there. Use a reputable company if you're going to. Really important. Yeah. Um, and just a couple other things in wrapping up here. Just the common sense stuff. Don't click on links. I mean, I mean, I don't know how many phishing emails you get, Craig, but I get them every single day, and they're they're tailored to look like you know purchase orders or contracts that I get. Um, but right away when I see that it starts out with "Dear Sir," right, an email you don't recognize, something a little fishy, I stop immediately and quickly and run over to delete. Um, unfortunately, that's that's part of business anymore. The percentage of time that you're going through your junk mail, your physical mail, your email, you know, the ones that look fishy, the emails, you, you got to take the time and do it because all it takes is that one click when you're distracted or busy um, and, and you, and you yeah. fall victim. Yeah. Well, you're going to, you're going to hate me for this, but here's, here's what I do. <laughs> Since I, li I like to see, you know, I, I guess I learn by experiencing and, and seeing, you know, seeing for myself and that kind of thing. So, you know, of course, when I get some of the suspicious looking emails, I know they're not going to go anywhere. Um, they're just, you know, it's a, half of the time it's, it's practically a dead link or it's just like an old spam bot that's been, you know, shooting out these fraudulent emails for years and stuff like that. But when I get one from, you know, something that claims to be an Amazon or claims to be a, an Apple or Google, I will actually click on the link because I know I, you know, I live through my browser in so many ways. And yeah. so I know that the cookies are going to fill in. If I've ever been to this, this specific URL before the cookies will fill that information in for me because I've been to it. So it's almost like a known trusted site. So naturally when I go to these, you know, wacko sites that are trying to, to <laughs> skim my credit card or whatever they're trying to do, it's not going to fill in the information. So I'm always curious to see what these sites look like. You know, how are they trying to trick me? Is, are they, are there like these bizarre misspellings? Is, is, is it that weird kind of English to Japanese back to English translations <laughs> that you see sometimes? And they're, they're, you know, they're humorous. I like to look at them and laugh, but I think they, they can be a, a learning tool too. If you're very yeah, careful true. about it, because you never want to click on an executable. That's the worst thing you can yeah. do because that's the thing that's going to take over your computer and then it's game over from there. You got to throw the computer out or, or wipe it clean or something. So I'm never, I'm never clicking on any attachments. That's a, you know, a .exe or any of those type of executables, but a link just to do kind of a casual browse to see what's over there, you know, on the darker side of the web. Um, I will do that occasionally just to, to see what they, you know, what the latest is in trying to fool me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it is important to, that you have the ability to do because part of it is awareness and training helps keep us sharp. So we don't keep falling victim. What, what I do, and again, this is more of maybe on the world of paranoia. I have a separate laptop that I use that those type of things, if I'm curious and want to learn about a particular phishing scam, where does this take me to the site, this and that, um, or from going to the dark web. Um, I've, I've got a computer that's set up with a specific VPN 
that's I, I try to keep it dedicated for certain type of work. So if I am victimized, which I have been a few times, I can I can clean the machine. Um, I could I could you know sandbox it in a sense so it doesn't interrupt my personal life and of course any of my business stuff. And and sometimes we have to do that. We have to be able to separate those things, especially in the field of cyber, so you can stay safe. Um, and so you don't end up victimized by some ransomware attack and it takes you down there. So it can be, can be a challenge. So, um, and maybe just in a final wrap up, I wanted to also throw in there, uh, for companies out there, uh, you should also consider, uh, looking into cyber, uh, insurance. I know that there's goods and bads with everything with, with insurance, but, but cyber insurance, I always look at as a means to mitigate the risk. If you can do that carefully, what it'll end up actually doing, if you're paying a premium for a policy, it's going to force you or hopefully the provider, the insurance provider will force you to make sure that you're at least doing um, good cyber hygiene with passwords, with backups, um, shredding documents, all the things that you should be doing, having a secure website, a secure e-commerce site, encryption, backing up your data, a layered security approach. They get you thinking about all these things because if you don't do those things and you fall victim to a breach, guess what? The cyber insurance is not going to do anything for you because they're not going to pay out mm-hmm. if you didn't follow the, you know, the steps that you agreed upon. So it's, it's kind of a forced way to discipline yourself to take a more uh, secure posture in the world of cybersecurity. So I do think it, it's a good thing to, to mitigate the risk and every company should have cyber insurance and, and obviously depends on what you're protecting, how valuable it is, so on and so forth, but it's something worth considering. Yeah. It reminds me of like fire insurance too. You know, yeah. you, 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 you're like, Oh, do I really need to, to foot the bill for these fire extinguishers? And do I have to mount them in a specific area so I can get to them in my kitchen in case there's an oil fire and blah, blah, blah. And you but the economic incentive is there. You know, if my house burns down or my company burns down and I didn't follow protocol, I'm not getting that check that's going to save my business or my home, you know? So you, it's, it's a, you can't underestimate the economic incentive that's in there for cyber insurance either. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, good. Well, it's some, some great conversation this time. And, and just to remind our listeners that this episode of Cyber Coast to Coast was brought to you by Cyberlytica. We appreciate our sponsors and Cyberlytica provides proactive cybercrime intelligence. If you want to learn a little bit more about Cyberlytica, visit cyberlytica.com. And, and just recently, I had a couple different um, people in the industry of cyber asking, hey, I, I I'd love to, to be able to, to sponsor one of your segments in the future. So certainly uh, if, if somebody does want to sponsor a segment of, of Cyber Coast to Coast, Craig, what, what, what can they do? How could they reach out to you? Oh, um, there's, I mean, there's a million ways. We're on, we're on Twitter uh, at, at BV Systems or at Scott BVS or at Hacked Again Books. Book, sorry, that's a singular and a plural. Um, Facebook, uh, Facebook slash BV Systems. Uh, of course, you can always email info at BV Systems. I check that mailbox every day, so I'm going to see anything like that. Or visit scottschober.com or bvsystems.com. And even in there, you'll see forms and all different uh, ways that you can uh, connect with us. And, you know, we will 
ask a question, you know, send a audio file. We'll play your, your little, your little audio file question on our show and we'll uh, answer it right, right off right away. Um, yeah. So there's more than ample ways to contact us. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. Again, you've been listening to Cyber Coast to Coast. This is Scott from the East Coast here in headquarters of Berkeley Varitronics, Metuchen, New Jersey, signing off. And great, great conversation. And look forward to uh, catching with, up with you next week, Craig. Yeah, we'll see you next week. This is Craig Schober from the West Coast signing out. And uh, everyone stay safe. Bye.